Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. On the show today, we launch Asia 360, a bi-weekly segment that takes a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region. And on that topic, we start the show talking about the CPTPP with New Zealand's High Commissioner to Canada. Coming up on February 21st, BIV will be exploring the due diligence and valuation involved in buying a business. This is one event in our Business Excellence Series. The panel discussion will feature experts on capital, M&A, and on closing deals. Once you've mastered how to buy a business, you can join us February 28th to learn how to successfully exit business. Our annual Retirement Ready panel will walk through how to retire well, wealthy, and healthy. Both events are in the afternoon at the Shangri-La Hotel. More information is available at BIV.com slash events. You're listening to BIV Today. Canada and New Zealand are among the first countries to ratify the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. The CPTPP has been in effect for just over a month now, and with me today to talk about the opportunities it presents both Canada and New Zealand is Daniel Melsop, New Zealand's High Commissioner to Canada. Good to have you with us. Thanks for coming in. Yes, good morning, Haley. Wonderful to be here. I've talked a lot on this show about the opportunities the CPTPP provides Canadians and Canadian companies, but tell me what does it mean for New Zealanders and their companies? Well, look, the, the CPTPP is something that New Zealand's been pursuing for over 10 years now. It's a major strategic uh, free trade agreement affecting uh, or covering the whole region. So we're very excited about that. So it creates opportunities um, for New Zealand to the tune of about $220 million worth of tariff reductions. Mm. So that's a pretty significant impact. You know, it's access to 480 million consumers and combined GDP of over $11 trillion. US dollars. So so big benefits there for New Zealand and for Canada. And specifically here in Canada, there's there's a lot of new opportunities that'll come about because of these new rules that are in place. What are some of those opportunities, Canada to New Zealand? Well, Canada to New Zealand, there's um there's plenty of opportunities. My job is mostly to promote the other direction, <laughs> but Certainly, New Zealand has uh, fantastic links into Asia already. And what we're doing uh, is working very closely with Canadian companies to explore how we can collaborate New Zealand businesses and Canadian businesses to uh, work together in the Asia region. And how about the other way, New Zealand to Canada? Well, New Zealand to Canada is great. I mean, it's uh, it's a $2 billion trading relationship already. Um, the tariffs will be removed on almost all our exports to Canada or have been already now that it's been implemented. So we're now 99.1% of our trade to Canada is tariff-free, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but I think for both Canada and New Zealand, most of the benefits is uh, probably behind the border. So we hear about the tariffs and the, the cuts there as the headlines, but a lot of the benefits are around uh, improving the movement of people. Uh, so for companies, it's much easier to transfer their employees between New Zealand and Canada now. Uh, there's facilitated customs cooperation, um, greater certainty around um, business processes uh, and standardization of um, uh, of processes and things. So that'll help our businesses in both directions considerably. When it comes to people mobility in Canada, for example, we're facing quite a severe skills shortage. Mm. What are some of the needs in New Zealand and where are some of the opportunities maybe New Zealand can meet the needs of Canada? Yeah, well, look, I think what uh, both New Zealand and Canada are facing is a real competitive environment to attract talent. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, unemployment in New Zealand is now at 3.9%, which is an incredibly low rate. Wow. Um, and we are actively uh, looking and competing with the likes of Canada for, for talent. 
Um, what we have going in New Zealand, of course, and, and I have to say very similar to what you have going for, for British Columbia and, and Canada, is it's a desirable place to live. And that's probably the best thing that we have to offer uh, for both our countries, is this ability to uh, you know promote our countries as a wonderful destination for people to go and live. Uh, and the ease of traveling between New Zealand and Canada is, is um, you know, it's there. We've got the direct air links. We've got similar business culture. Um, it does make life a lot easier. And, you know, we're quite open about the fact that New Zealanders will want to travel overseas, spend some time in other environments. And I certainly encourage them to come to Canada and then bring back their knowledge and expertise back to New Zealand at some point. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the the sectors, I mean, it's very similar to here. Um, we've got uh, a demand for highly skilled workers in New Zealand, um, but we also have a shortage of, of uh, low-skilled uh, employees. Interesting. Now, here in Canada, we have a, a federal priority on tech and innovation. Are there mm. any key priorities for the government of New Zealand? Yeah, well, traditionally, our uh, strength has been around the food uh, side of things, food production. Uh, but now that's more in the high tech side of the mm. the food production, so we're we're really pushing that uh, very hard, um, and we're we're world leaders when it comes to uh, food technology, uh, to uh, clean technology, um, things like artificial intelligence are becoming much more important. Um, New Zealand is a space capable country. Uh, we now have the capability to launch satellites into space, so one of the very few countries that can do that. Uh, so that's become a major priority for New Zealand to promote as well. Do you see many opportunities in the clean tech space as well as the food tech space in partnering specifically with British Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of that's happening already. Um, and an obvious one is around counter um, cyclical production. So uh, when it's summer here in uh, Vancouver and British Columbia and you're producing your uh, horticulture products, for example, it's winter in New Zealand and then vice versa. So things like um, seed development, um, you can you can develop your seeds and your plants twice as quickly by having some of the research in Canada and some of the research in New Zealand and taking advantage of those seasons, for example. But I think there's also good, that's a good example of where we can work together um, to access markets in Asia. You know, if we're producing um, berries, for example, for a certain period of the year, and then British Columbia is doing the same thing six months later, um, there's no reason why we can't combine those supply chains to uh, just have year-round supply into markets like Japan or China or Vietnam. Mm. Generally speaking, because formal trade agreements for Canada in Asia, it's a newer concept than, say, for New Zealand. Mm. What are some of the myths or lessons learned you could talk about when it comes to businesses entering that market based on the experience that New Zealand has? Yeah, well, for, for New Zealand, we are part of the Asia region. We consider ourselves to be an Asian country. So we do have that long uh, track record of uh, establishing links uh, up into the Asia region. Um, I think the first thing to realize is that you know Asia is very, very diverse. Uh, and even within individual countries, within China, it's a very diverse market. Um, so you can't just think of it as, as one region. Uh, and there is, need, there, there is a need to spend time in the region. Um, and the relationships are critical. I mean, relationships are important anywhere in business, but in particular, uh, as a very general statement in the Asia region, you have to invest a lot of time and effort uh, into personal relationships, uh, and then the commercial uh, benefits will flow from that. Have you seen many situations of companies, let's say a Canadian company, for example, choosing to set up in New Zealand to then access the broader Asian market? Does that happen often? Yes, that does happen, and, and that's something we're certainly encouraging. Uh, New Zealand, for example, has a free trade agreement with China, and we've, we've had that for over 10 years now, uh, and that's given us excellent access uh, into, into that market. And we certainly market ourselves, New Zealand, as an investment destination based on our access uh, to Asia and to those markets. What are some of the, say, similarities when it comes to doing business in Canada versus New Zealand, and what are some of the key differences that are worth pointing out? 
Yeah, well, I, I like to tell people that uh, if, if they're moving overseas, business people overseas from New Zealand, I mean, after Australia, Canada is probably the easiest place for them to come mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the culture of the people, the business culture, the uh, the common legal, similar legal framework. Um, we've got very similar values as countries in, in a shared Commonwealth history. So that means that the environment is very similar, um, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly the same. And I think uh, I think companies going in, back in both directions need to be conscious of that. Um, your uh, your processes here your, for setting up a business, uh, registration, all those sorts of things are quite different to what we face in New Zealand. Um, coming in the other direction, we're actually very proud of the fact that, that we're the number one country in the world when it comes to the ease of doing business. We're mm. consistently ranked uh, quite highly in those, those rankings. We're the easiest country in the world to start up a business. Um, we're the most uh, transparent country in the world and we're the least corrupt country in the world. So those sorts of selling points, I think, are very attractive for uh, for companies like companies from Canada looking for a foothold in the Asia region. All very good things. <laughs> uh, in terms of areas that are maybe priorities for investment or where New Zealand might be looking for more investment, what are some of those? Where are some mm. of the greatest opportunities, not just today, but looking, say, five, ten years out? Yeah, sure. And and look, Canada is one of the, uh, the most important investors in New Zealand. Um, we, we actively encourage uh, foreign direct investment. We're, we're an economy of 5 million people um, and we need capital uh, from the outside. Our, our biggest priority at the moment, I think, is in the tourism sector. So tourism is now our number one export earner uh, and it's a booming industry. Uh, and what we need to do is uh, have the investment coming into our tourism sector to develop the infrastructure, to build the hotels uh, and the other facilities to support that sector. Um, but also there's no shortage of uh, infrastructure development going on in New Zealand at the moment. I mean, our economy is booming and has been for some time. The forecasts are also good. So you see that I think Auckland now has is, is the city in the world with the second most amount of cranes, um, oh, which, wow. is, which is pretty significant for a, for a country like New Zealand. We, I think in Vancouver, get the impression that we maybe have the most cranes, but I don't think we're in the top 10 when it comes to that. Um, You're in BC. You told me before we uh, hit the air that you're in BC every few months or so to Mm -hmm. meet with businesses and individuals out here. What's your message to BC businesses now that our, our economies are linked under this new trade agreement? Yeah. Well, look, my main message is uh, let's work together uh, when it comes to accessing the Asian markets. Uh, We have that expertise there. I'm sure there'll be more business between New Zealand and Canada, and we're definitely promoting that. Um, But the main thing I'm pushing uh, is around how we can collaborate in those third markets, whether it be uh, other CPTPP partners like uh, Vietnam, like in Japan, um, or it's in some other markets. Like uh, We both have free trade agreements with Korea, for example. Um, New Zealand has an agreement with China. Uh, Canada has a good agreement with the US, so we can take advantage of that. But particularly one other thing I'd like to mention out here in British Columbia is around um, promoting our indigenous uh, businesses. Um, So that's a major priority for my government and also for the government here in Canada to support um, businesses, exporters led by uh, the indigenous communities. So looking for collaborations around that space is a major priority for my time out here and and British Columbia in particular. Mm -hmm, That's a very good point. Uh, One final question for you too, when it comes to that collaboration, how much of it could happen maybe virtually? How much of it do you think really needs to happen in person? Well, I think I think we're seeing more and more of the virtual stuff uh, happening for sure. Um, but I think when it comes to setting up business relationships, it's it's pretty hard to do that uh, over the internet or, or remotely. Um, you, you still need that face to face contact and developing developing those personal relationships. Um, a good hook for that here in Vancouver is going to be the World Indigenous Business Forum, which you'll be hosting in October, and that'll be a, an excellent platform. There'll be a large delegation coming up from New Zealand, um, so in that Indigenous space in particular, for the companies to engage with each other, meet each other, um, identify their common interests, uh, and hopefully work together. 
Thank you so much for coming to studio and joining me on the show. Thank you. That's Daniel Melsop, New Zealand's High Commissioner to Canada. Today, we launch a new segment with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada called Asia 360. Every other week, we'll take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest-growing region. Jeff Reeves is the Vice President of Research at the Foundation, and he joins me today to discuss how the U.S. and China are perceived in Southeast Asia and what the implications of that are for Canada. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning. Before we dive into some of the results, and they sound like really interesting results, tell me why perceptions matter. What are some of the broader impacts that a positive or negative perception can have? Well, I think when you think about perceptions, it's kind of a a parallel issue to opportunity, especially when you think about for Canada. Um, this particular study that we'll talk about in a, in a bit um, points to the fact that perceptions in Southeast Asia are changing around the desirability of certain partnerships, um, the uh, opportunities that are coming from certain states, the threats that come from regional dynamics and trends. And when you think about those strategically from, Canadian, uh, from a Canadian perspective, you can see opportunities for engagement. You can see opportunities for political partnerships, for economic uh, relationships, and for, again, opportunities for engagement. So I think that's where perception is important uh, and you know, where, where these opportunities come for Canada. Southeast Asia is often positioned as a region in between the two superpowers of the United States mm-hmm. and China. What are some of the top concerns for Southeast Asia? Well, so that's a good segue to get into this particular study that came out last week from the Asian Study Center of the Yusophisic Institute out of Singapore. Uh, this particular public opinion poll uh, surveyed a thousand elite uh, responses from throughout the ASEAN member states countries on issues ranging from strategic to economic to political interests. And what you see is a steady decline of opinion or desirability to be in that position between China and the United States, to be a sub-region within Asia that's feeling that pressure, that squeeze from what you would, I think, um, rightfully argue is an increasing U.S.-China strategic rivalry relationship. So yeah, very much a sense that that rivalry will shape their strategic environment and a concern over that. Is it possible to look at the region as a whole and say they're more closely aligned with the U.S. or China? Or do you really have to drill down to the policies of each sort of member country within the region to figure that out? I think that looking at each individual country is the right way to approach that that question. Um, But there are some trends. And I think, again, the survey data was interesting in that respect. Overall, most uh, ASEAN member states believe that China's influence is growing in Southeast Asia. And that in the future, China will probably be the most single influential actor in terms of political and economic outcomes for Southeast Asian states. Now, that's probably a little bit more true for the continental side of Southeast Asia. So if you're looking at Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, than it is for the maritime side, which typically tends to be a little bit more aligned towards U.S. strategic visions and U.S. strategic goals and understandings. So if you have a region then that's recognizing the economic importance of China and the role China will play moving forward, but also a region that wants to stand on its own, how do you think that's going to shape policy? What might we be able to expect out of the region? Well, first of all, ASEAN remains probably the most important multilateral institution for Southeast Asian states to achieve their own autonomy in terms of foreign policy. 
However, uh, there's a growing desirability among some of the ASEAN member states, and I'd point to Indonesia as probably being the best example to have their own foreign policy outside of that multilateral institution. Um, so I think that there's a huge desirability for engagement with outside actors, with secondary partners, and for kind of a coalition of middle powers in, in Southeast Asia, where you can allow them a little bit more room for maneuver between that US-China um, balance, that relationship where they can find their own kind of way forward. So that might then be an opportunity for a country like Canada. Exactly. And I think that's why this polling data is so interesting. Uh, what we do see is that there's uh, a very small level of trust for the United States and for China, but there's a much higher level of trust for engagement with states uh, in the Asian region, like Canada, like Australia, um, and in particularly Japan, which was, I think, uh, an interesting finding from this particular set of, uh, of polling results. In research that you've read or that the foundation has done itself, what does the region think of Canada. I know you're doing some work on this topic, but generally speaking, if we're maybe a good option for the region, right. a secondary player, how, what do they think of us? So we're doing some uh, polling right now on business opinions of engagement with Canada in the region. We're looking at China, India, Vietnam, Singapore, Japan, and uh, South Korea. So there's a little bit of overlap with the public opinion polling out of Singapore, uh, and in particular with the Vietnam and, and Singapore. So what we've seen is that there's a desirability among all of these states for greater engagement with Canada. The stumbling block is essentially a lot of these countries don't understand what options are out there or how they can engage best with Canada. And for example, what kind of services they can engage with, uh, you know, with Canadian firms, uh, investment opportunities, trade opportunities. And there's just not a general understanding of the regulatory environment in Canada uh, and that's keeping states from engaging, I think, deeper. Uh, we saw a huge amount of um, goodwill coming from India, uh, where there, I think almost 60% of our respondents said they'd like to pursue economic relations with Canada, mm. but they just don't know how. Interesting. Now, we've had a, a long and largely successful relationship here in Canada with the United States. There's some tension there at this point in time, but from a, an external perspective, does that affect how, say, countries in Southeast Asia perceive Canada? Well, I think it's important for Canada to make sure that it's engaging in the region based on its own national interests, right? Um, to make sure that the decisions it makes, the relationships that it pursues are in line with its, its own foreign policy view, its own regional strategy, and that the United States, while an important partner, is just another partner. Uh, the need for diversity uh, in, in relations in the Asia Pacific is something that should drive Canadian interests. And I think Southeast Asia is a wonderful opportunity because you have a lot of middle-sized states with, uh, with relatively low degrees of economic engagement with Canada, but with high degrees of desirability for greater engagement. So yeah, the United States is an important partner, but it shouldn't determine the way that Canada engages with the region. And I think uh, Canada needs to get ahead of that curve and show that it's an independent actor 
with a long-term strategic investment in the region. We have, of course, this new CPTPP that allows us some more access into the region from a trade and economic perspective. And the U.S. isn't part of it. And I've often heard that described as giving Canada sort of a first mover advantage without what would have been a major competitor. But Australia is part of it, too. So I'm wondering, is there any time of sort of time crunch or pressure on Canada to really step up its engagement in Southeast Asia? The advantage of being an early adapter of the CPTPP is that Canada can be at the table when the regulations are being negotiated and set. And when the norms and the values around this particular trade regime are, are being formed. So I think that there's a lot of complementary um, opportunity for engagement between, for example, states like Canada and Australia. But, you know, they also bring different things to this trade regime. Uh, for example, different services, different merchandise for trade, um, different different desirability for, for regional actors for engagement. So I don't think it's a zero-sum game at all. What I think the CPTPP is, is a, is a great opportunity for regional economies to come together to lower tariffs uh, and to create an opportunity for each other. You know, the opportunity to engage with Japan is a huge one for Canada. Uh, there's no need to negotiate an FTA anymore with Japan now that we have the CPTPP. And uh, that's, that's a huge opportunity for Canadian firms. Getting back to the perceptions that exist in the region when it comes to be it Canada, the U.S. or China, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges a country like Canada faces in terms of what the region thinks about the rest of the world and potential partners? I think demonstrating that Canada has a long-term intent on engaging with the region is probably the biggest challenge. Mm. Again, there's a bit of a deficit coming for Canada coming to the region in that there is a regional perception to a degree that it will follow the United States in terms of what the United States is doing. Canada and Canadian firms and the Canadian government can get past that by just making sure that their foreign policy and their engagement strategy is in line with Canadian interests. But there needs to be a demonstrated push that shows Asian states that Canada is committed to the region that it's committed to understanding the strategic trends and realities of the region, and that it's looking to be a proactive partner in helping solve some of those strategic problems, but also um, helping the region grow in terms of engagement, in terms of identifying the right areas for cooperation and, and investment and trade and, and, and such. So a demonstration through the region that, that Canada is interested and committed. Jeff, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to our show on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also listen to past episodes and read, listen to, and watch more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 